This is an ABC podcast. Hey, Miyuki Okiranta here. There's this Australian video that went viral a few years ago. You might have heard of it. It's known by the phrase, a succulent Chinese meal. It's one minute of footage shot in the early 90s of a remarkable performance. Journalist Lawrence Bull was captivated by it. And on this first episode in a brand new year of earshot, we're going to follow Lawrence as he tries to make sense of the man who declared to the police and to the world, this is democracy manifest. And just a warning, there are some adult themes coming up. And this is a longer listen than usual, but it's worth it. Just, you just assured me that I could speak... Sit down inside the car. We're not assuring anything. We're under arrest. Look, I'm under what? Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. The first time I came across this video, I had to go back and re-watch it a few times. It's hard to describe what makes it one of the most engaging videos on the internet. Have a look at the headlock here. See that chap over there? Get your hand off my penis! Watching it, I feel like I'm watching an absurd comedy and a great documentary rolled into one. The rarest of mashups. This is the bloke who got me on the penis before. Why did you do this to me? For what reason? What is the charge? Eating a meal? A succulent Chinese meal? If you haven't seen it before, here's what happens. The man being escorted to the police car has a handlebar moustache and looks to be in his late 40s he immediately reaches out and shuts the car door and turns to wander off. When an officer opens the car door again and reaches for him, he gives an indignant look and slams the door closed again. The whole time, he's trying to put his sunglasses on. Oh, that's a nice headlock, sir. Oh, ah, yes. I see that you know your judo well. He's outraged that he won't get a chance to address whoever's behind the camera. But then, as he stands steady, while six police officers try to force him into a car, all he has to say is nonsense. And you, sir, are you waiting to receive my limp penis? How dare get your hands on Finally, they tip him backwards like a tall piece of furniture and ease him in diagonally. As his head starts to dip out of sight, he says... Surely no innocent person would act like this. But it makes no sense that a guilty person would act like this either. I had the same questions as hundreds of the comments below the online video. What's the backstory to this? What did this guy do? Where and when did this happen? And why was he behaving like that? What was he even arrested for? Who was this guy? What happened to this legendary man? Some people said it was staged, maybe cut from a TV show. Is this real? Other people said it was a reenactment for a crime show. Who is this guy? Who is this guy? This guy. One theory was that the man was former New South Wales politician John Bartlett, which inspired a tribute song on a BBC comedy show. John Bartlett data The impact of that song was immense. I mean, it brought down the Australian government and no one was arrested for eating a Chinese meal ever again. But the most popular theory was that the man was an eccentric chess master named Paul Charles Dozer, who was famous for running out of restaurants without paying. He'd bragged that he held the world record for dining and dashing. And that's the theory that took off. Dozer's hilarious delivery and defiant attitude made him something of a folk hero in the eyes of many Australians who consider him to be a lovable rogue. Newspapers and magazines like Who Weekly, New Idea and The Daily Mail ran articles on Dozer, stating that he was the man in the video. Yes, this guy wasn't just some crazy old man. He was actually a chess champion. But some commenters weren't convinced. This is not Paul Dozer. Dozer had died in 2003, but people who claimed to know him said he spoke with a thick Hungarian accent. Well, I knew Paul Dozer, and this is not him. We're sure it's not him. Not even close. Nothing like him. So who is this legend? This is Dozer explaining his dine and dash behaviour to the ABC a few years after the arrest video was made. The Hungarian Military Strategic Mine Research Organisation controls my energy field 
through a Soviet Union satellite. I know it sounds unbelievable. The more I learnt, the more questions I had. But nobody came forward with a better explanation. So, despite millions of views over many years, it seemed like the identity of the man and the reason for his bizarre arrest would remain a mystery. Until late 2019, when another video appeared online. You ready? Yep. What do you want me to say? Democracy manifest. Gentlemen, this is democracy manifest. Get your hands off my penis. And also get your hands It's him. The man who was arrested outside the Chinese restaurant. He's indoors, sitting down, eating at a table. He's 30 years older, but it's finally him. But there's no explanation. We're not told who he is, where he is, nothing. Six months later, another video appears on YouTube. Ladies and gentlemen, I... Mr. Democracy Manifest, not some Hungarian chess player. It is I. It's him again. This time he's alone, talking directly to the camera. He says his famous arrest outside the restaurant had been a case of mistaken identity. And he'd acted that way because he wanted the police to put him in an asylum where he could easily escape. Then he plays an old news report from the time of his infamous arrest. When Cecil George Edwards was arrested in the Chinatown Mall last Friday, the Valley Police thought they had one of Queensland's most wanted. Instead, he was a petty criminal working under several aliases, the police allege, a con man with a flair for acting. What is the charge? Eating a meal? A succulent Chinese meal? Oh, that's a nice headlock, sir. I can't make sense of this news story. Heaps of police showed up, media in tow, and arrested this man thinking he was one of Queensland's most wanted. He wasn't the criminal they were looking for, but by amazing coincidence, he was also a wanted criminal. And he just happened to be committing a crime right at the moment they mistakenly caught him. How does that happen? What are the odds? But now, there's a lead. He's selling merchandise plastered with pictures and quotes from his famous video. Get your hand off my penis. Rather, go and clasp a bottle of this wonderful Pinot Noir. So after a few emails and a lot of waiting, I get him on the line. Hello, Lawrence. My name's Jack and I have many other aliases. It's good to talk to you. Yeah. Let's go to that time in the 90s when they took you out of the restaurant. Mm. What were you doing in the restaurant? I had a mate with me. We were having a good feed, which it was a restaurant I used to go to quite often. Next moment, they've ran in. I knew they had the wrong bloke. So I thought, well, why not let them think that I'm a lunatic? (laughs) So that's why I was uttering all these things, get your hand off my penis. and uh, Because I remember once I got into a place, I had me drill going into the safe, and they fell on me, the police. Got me back to the police station and I'm giving them cheek and they're bashing me. They used to love bashing you. So I'd pull me dick out and say, keep hitting me again, I love it. Come on, hit me again. And I'd keep trying to masturbate as they're smashing me. <laughs> and they sent me to the good and lunatic asylum. And I escaped from there quite easily. (laughs) (laughs) So that was your plan. So that's where Get Your Hand Off My Penis came from. Maybe, 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 maybe. They were looking for a Hungarian chess player, Dosa. Once we got back to the police station, of course, they found out that I wasn't this Hungarian dashing diner and they gave me bail. This doesn't make sense. How could the police have possibly mistaken him for Dozer? Also, Dozer's crime was running out on restaurant bills. There was no way he was one of Queensland's most wanted. And you wouldn't send a small army of police officers to arrest him. You were using stolen credit cards at that time or or what was going on? No, no, no. I did nothing wrong in the restaurants. I love a restaurant. Didn't you have to pay bail? 
oh, yeah, yeah, of course. That was when they charged me with resisting arrest. They said they also charged you with fraud and receiving stolen property. Did they? That's what they said in the paper. I don't understand why Jack doesn't just acknowledge the fraud charges. But he's not talking. Or he genuinely doesn't know. So I leave it for now. And they call you Cecil Jerry Edwards. Oh, you're going back to when I was 16 years of age. That was my name. Oh, really? Yes. Because this was in 91 that I'm talking about. I'm going back to 1958. You weren't even alive then. Yeah. I was with a couple of blokes and they robbed a place and oh, I was in the back seat drinking Brandovino. That's all we could get in them days. And they arrested us. So I had a trial and I thought I'd defend myself. What an idiot thing to do. Imagine me, a 17-year-old boy. I was actually cross-examining the coppers in courts like some lawyer. The other two older blokes said, yeah, we're guilty. We're guilty. I said, I know nothing about it. I'm not guilty. So I got five years in jail when I was 17 years of age. The blokes who done the crime got three years. (laughs) It's odd to me that Jack would laugh at something so distressing. But he does it so often during our conversation that I stop noticing. Jack went to Boggo Road Jail, maximum security and notorious for its brutal conditions. And they put me in a cell with two other boys and the food was disgusting. And I said to them, I said, come mates, we can't eat this one tonight, but we're hungry, we'll have to eat it. And we all had diarrhoea. In those days, cells didn't have toilets or sinks or anything. And the shit tub, it was overflowing with vomiting. So I've knocked up on the door and I said, screw, can we have another shit tub, please? They said, no, one cell, one shit tub. So then I just threw a bucket of shit back over the chief water. Got this. (laughs) Well... They come in, they flogged me and and they put me in what they call the Black Peter. Not many people have been in the Black Peter. There's a huge trapdoor. You go down these steps into a dungeon, I think, and it's all dark. You're only on bread and water. That was horrible. Oh, I don't want to think about this. Jack says the Black Peter was the worst thing he'd ever experienced. He'd bang on the doors and fight with the guards just so he could see the light for a few minutes while they bashed him. The man in the cell next to him had been there for months. He finally lost his mind and was hauled off to an asylum. Jack still has nightmares about the Black Peter. He still sleeps with the lights on. After that, he couldn't tolerate being in the cell anymore. Being locked up, he felt he couldn't breathe. He had to get out. I was being escorted from Bogger Road in a train. I was handcuffed to some other bloke. I say to myself, I'm not gonna front on this blue. I was pretending to be asleep and the the copper opposite me, he's nodding off a bit, so I've just undone the handcuff with the prong of me belt, tippy-toed down the corridor and leapt out of the bloody train. (laughs) So I wonder I didn't smash into a bloody signal post or something. (laughs) But from there I was careful. I'd I'd just stay in the bush of a day and of a night I'd walk managed to get a car and I ended up in Sydney anyway. You keep saying you've got something. It was so beautiful, the breeze, that air. You call love. I met a beautiful woman. I married her. I had a child to her. 
All I wanted to do was live a decent life. I didn't want screws hitting me with battens. I didn't want to be in Black Peters. I didn't want to be told what to do. And I got out and it was so beautiful. After he tells me about his time in prison, I start to understand Jack's behaviour in the video. He was traumatised in custody and he was prepared to take big risks to avoid going back. I want to keep him talking. He isn't about to own up to any crimes in the restaurant, but I want him to tell me enough about his criminal history so I can figure out what he might have been up to inside the restaurant before his famous diatribe. Eventually, a bloke said to me, mate, we can open a safe this way. We didn't rob the poor. We only robbed the scum that are robbing us, the banks and the other vermin. Jack got four years for safe cracking. He ended up in French Island Prison Farm in the middle of Western Port Bay, outside Melbourne. The governor called me and he's showing me all these photos of prisoners who tried to escape eaten by sharks or drowned. You can't get away from here. Oh, well, I don't want to get away from here, Gavin. It looks like a wonderful paradise. But as soon as I got there, there's me mate, Pete, working in the vegetable garden. Two days later, me and Pete, we just took off. Jack and Pete walked overnight, down by the water, so the tide would cover their footprints by morning. After dodging search patrols for a week, they came across a motorboat, circling aimlessly in shallow water. And then all of a sudden we heard this... What the fuck's that? Going out, leapt aboard, and there was a bloke asleep. I woke him up and said, you must be them prisoners that escaped, huh? Took us across to the mainland. What a good man. What a good man. A Scotchman. He was a Scotchman. There's such a beautiful thing when you can escape from tyranny. God, I felt so good. I had to steal a couple of cars to get back to Sydney and then we tried to get a quit. Eventually got pinched. Jack and his mate got caught cruising Parramatta late at night with safe-breaking tools. So at the courthouse, waiting for his trial to start, Jack put on a performance, a bit like the one outside the restaurant. He pretended to be a cop. It was a big cell with about 20 people in it. And I pretended to walk in and look like a detective. I was only 25. I grabbed me mate. I said, open this cell door. You know I am, Detective Sergeant Rogers. Open this door. I'm taking this man round to the forecourt. Other blokes in the cell were saying, you copper dog, Rogers. Because I jeered him up. And I've grabbed me, mate. He said, I'm not going. And I've had to give him a couple of punches like coppers normally do. And he opened the door. Away we walked. I've got eight years for that. But that's life, isn't it? Jack spent almost a quarter of a century growing up in jails and boys' homes. Then at age 33, he was finally free. That was beautiful, to have that freedom again. To get parole, you had to have a job, and they got me a job on the TV doing things like pretending to be a police informer and all the things that I'm not. (laughs) Division 4, cop shop, Matlock police, homicide. These were things that were on the TV every week. You know how I got sacked? There was a scene in the back of a pub. In the scene, a young Jack and the other actors are drinking around a barrel of beer. And it's a real barrel. 
You're wrong, missing the bloody point, I tell you. Reverend Hartley done what he's supposed to do. Got them off their bums out doing a bit of work. They've got to take about ten shots. And the director said, just have a sip, pour it out, have a sip, tip it out. And I said to you blokes, don't tip it out, don't you dare. Just fucking keep drinking. And we kept drinking and they taped it. You know how stilted those shit was, that stuff. But this wasn't stilted, they were fair dinkum drunk. Let me put it this way to you. If everybody bloody person round here was as hard as some people I know, then we may as well all, uh, all toss it in. So they sacked me. <laughs> <laughs> so I fled to Queensland because I lost my parole. <laughs> Let's go to that video when they took you out of the restaurant. Why did you say this is democracy manifest? Is that a political statement? At the time, everyone's talking about how wonderful democracy is and maybe that could have been a political statement. Gentlemen, this is democracy manifest. As they got me around the throat and putting handcuffs on me. <laughs> Jack's arrest outside the Chinese restaurant is making more and more sense. He'd been a serial escaper, a fraudster, and a performer. I want to ask him more, but I can tell he's getting tired and wants to go. Maybe the cops had been after Jack. They might have sent a lot of police because they were worried he'd try to escape again. Also, he clearly had a criminal history. Who knows what he could have been wanted for? This would explain a lot, Except, why would the news report call him a petty criminal? I figure someone out there knows something, so I scour thousands of YouTube comments for snippets of information. Eventually, I come across a commenter who said their university lecturer was one of the detectives in the arrest video. The cop in the red tie is my lecturer at Queensland University of Technology in Australia. He's now a professor in law school and showed us this video of his earlier career. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I contact the university, and after some convincing, I get the former detective on the line. His name's Dean. In the video, Dean's the one trying to order Jack into the car. Sit down inside the car. We're not assuring anything. We're under arrest. Look, I'm under what? My partner and I at the time... We were sitting in the fraud squad on a Friday afternoon and it's not usually that much happening in the fraud squad on a Friday afternoon. There certainly wasn't back in those days. We were probably planning which pub we were about to go to. The last thing we wanted to do was be involved in some dramatic incident on the streets. They got a call to go down to Fortitude Valley to help some uniformed officers. And turning the corner there at Chinatown in the valley to where the restaurant was and just being confronted by this wall of people and cameras. It was like they were behind barricades with police sort of manning the barricades. It was almost like a film set or something. So we went into the restaurant and there was heaps of other police. The uniform inspector or whatever said to us, listen, we don't know what to do with this guy. For us, it was just a matter of working out what we could charge him with. And what was the charge? Eating a meal? A succulent Chinese yeah, meal? Yeah. He had like an American Express card and it was either forged or in the wrong name. So I suspect we charge him with forgery or something like that. On the news they said police had been hoping to arrest one of Queensland's most wanted. And instead they got this guy. Who were they talking about, one of Queensland's most wanted? I don't know where that would have come from. I mean, he wasn't Dillinger or anything like that, but he also wasn't just some fly-by-night guy. It wasn't though we were going, why did we go through all that drama just for a $70 skip check on a meal or something. Yeah. Since then, the narrative now on the internet yep. is that you were hoping to catch Paul Dozer, the Dine and Dasher, and you ended up getting this guy, Jack Carlson. Utter rubbish. Utter rubbish. After struggling to get Jack into the car, the police took him to the watch house. But when Dean showed up for work the next morning, Jack was long gone. He managed to talk them into thinking that he would 
be a safe bet to let out. It was a shock to us when we found out the next day that the watch house had let him out. Jack ran off and didn't show up to court. Brisbane's credit card con man picked up at a Valley restaurant a week ago has gone to ground. Anyone with information is asked to call crime stoppers. From that point on, it was sort of a case of trying to track him down again. Dean remembers the alleged credit card fraud being in the tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars. He staked out a Commonwealth bank branch for days, hoping Jack would stop by. I mean, he became a bit of an enigma in a way, the way he sort of disappeared. For someone who was such an accomplished actor like him, it seemed all perfectly set up for him to do his sort of scene in front of the camera. So you're aware of his acting credits? Oh, no, I'm not. <laughs> it sounds like you're going to tell me something here. <laughs> Did you ever watch any of the old Crawford police shows? Oh, I love Homicide. <laughs> What are you going to tell me now? He did a bit part in that or something? Yeah, he's in homicide. You're kidding me. I tell you, I went in for two pots, that's all. I come out here, had to go back on me rounds, and me bloody car's gone. Are you sure it was in this street? Of course I'm sure. A man spends a fortune paying off his car. What, for some rotten galah to come along and knock it off? I know, I know it's a free country and democracy and all that, but it's truth, how the hell? Dean's sure they weren't in the Chinese restaurant to arrest Dozer or any other criminal. They were there to arrest Jack, which makes sense. Jack was using stolen credit cards, and the reason he won't admit it is that he skipped bail and never went to court. But I'm still no closer to understanding why a small army of police turned up, or the media. Dean couldn't explain it either. But most of all, I want to understand why Jack acted like that. He says he was acting insane, but that doesn't make much sense. Is insanity even a defence for eating out on stolen credit cards? Why did he say those bizarre and hilarious lines that have become so beloved? Why was he delivering them like a thespian monologue? In our last interview, Jack mentioned acting on stage and talked about his bit parts on crime dramas. But when I play back the recording, I pick up on something I didn't notice before. To get parole, you had to have a job, and they got me a job with Crawford. McNeil got me out. McNeil. The name didn't mean anything to me at the time, but I find out he was a famous playwright who did all of his writing from prison. He was also an alcoholic and a fiercely vocal critic of the justice system. Gentlemen, this is Democracy Manifest. I book a flight to Queensland to meet Jack in person. It turns out everything he's told me so far is just the entree to the incredible story behind this succulent Chinese meal. Hello, how are you? <laughs> Good morning. How are you? Good to meet you finally. Likewise, comrade. Yeah. Jack lives in a small house on a rural property in southeastern Queensland. He's broke, or as he puts it, on the bones of his fucking ass. He drinks, then he quits cold turkey so he can paint. Oh, we'll go over here first. Yeah. This is one of my studios. I paint here, paint over there. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, that went up the top. I've been offered 3,000, but I've got to finish it. Most of these are only half finished. I've got to finish them. I've been a bit crook. I'm off to drink now. I haven't had a drink for two weeks. I was in hospital for about four days. I've detoxed, I think. I need another week or two, and I'll be able to handle me steady, be able to finish me paintings. Yeah. I guess a lot of the guys you came up with drank... A lot, yeah. I've been reading up about the prison, Parramatta, and you know some of the other places. Oh yeah, Jim McNeil, the playwright. Yeah, yeah. He was a big drinker, wasn't he? Oh yeah, yeah. When I got the eight years, I went down to the wing, and there was McNeil. He said, "Hey, wait, I've heard about you. You heard about my escape, pretending to be a detective, and all that sort of stuff." And he said, come on, you can stay in my cell with me. And we were mates ever since. 
used to call me the Hun, basically. <laughs> I dig up some old radio interviews where McNeil talks about Jack and their time in prison in the early 70s. He was a very good painter, the Hun, an artist. Known as the Hun because he runs around speaking German, everyone. And the lovely black, I love him. Jim and I, we used to make a, a brew. We'd get some raisins and stuff from the cookhouse and some yeast from the bakehouse and make a quick two-day brew and hope they didn't go ramping the cell while I was brewing. Every night when he went to bed, he'd put the yeast and sugar in and the jam and the plug in the sink and then he'd just turn the tap on and put the water in and go to sleep. And in the morning, this terrific brew would have fermented and we'd both put our head in it like two horses in a trough. And the doors had opened before breakfast, right in the early morning, all out the yard, and we'd both be blind as bats. <laughs> and it was the marvellous hunt. And they used to keep falling on the hunt, raiding him, and if they did, he'd pull out the plug. And I'd have me easel near the door, painting. Jim would be tap, tap, tap. Ah, hey, hang on, I'm doing a painting. By then, we'd pull the plug and the evidence had all run down the drain. He's just terrific. <laughs> what did it taste like? Oh, terrible. Sometimes it wasn't fully uh, fermented and you'd get a terrible gut sake. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, inspiration for the play, huh? Making the juice. Yeah, there it is. Yeah, that's, that was it. Before Jim McNeil wrote The Old Familiar Juice and his other famous plays, he was president of the prison debate group. Jack was in the group too. We'd debate university intellectuals who'd come out and most of us hadn't had any schooling, but... <laughs> Everyone laughed at it, the screws, at all the other prisoners. It was a joke, but it wasn't a joke to those who were in it. A lot of the boys in the group wanted to debate. They were good thinkers, but they never had a wide reference for their thoughts. They couldn't quote any literature or sources. One boy said, well, could you write it out for me, what I should say? And I said, yes. And I'd write their openings and I'd write their spiel and I'd write their perorations. And, and those marvellous fellas used to learn it off by heart. Incredible. Commas and full stops. And people would come and make an audience of outside people of a Saturday morning. The marvellous debaters the prisoners, and I used to plan what their opponents would say and then I'd write an answer to what they'd say. They'd be saying, as Schopenhauer said, <laughs> and they couldn't even pronounce Schopenhauer, much less did half of them know what he said. But it used to sound pretty good to the adjudicator. And they entered the Sydney debating union competition and all these outside debating teams had come in and debate the prisoner team who always won. University debating teams had come out and we'd flog them. <laughs> I'd say to Jim, put one up there. Adolf Hitler's not a bad bloke. He's <laughs> that sort of thing. <laughs> and then you'd have these university students that are arguing and saying, yes, he killed six million Jews and he done this and that and he done that. <laughs> and then I'd get up and say, no, just a moment. That's just, that's, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> why, why did you want to do that? Oh, just to stir them up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to stir him up. And people used to think, doesn't he think well on his feet? And, he, and he, he'd be memorising. And no one ever knew. And I became expert in this. I wrote hundreds, hundreds of debates and hundreds of speeches for the public. I was writing dialogue. And I taught myself to be a writer. I was doing other people favours without even knowing that I was doing myself a bigger favour. But McNeil was getting frustrated. Outside intellectuals were coming into his prison to debate and telling him why people like he and Jack belonged there. They knew that they knew what was wrong with you. So they shut their ears. And I said, well, if they can't hear it, perhaps we'd better give them a visual tale. We'll act it out. And one day I, I said to Mr Hayes, director of parole, we want to put on this little sketch or whatever you want to call it, because I never had an idea that I'd written a play. And he said, oh, no, because it'd never been heard of in the prisons. The authorities were against prisoners performing. 
but the parole director managed to arrange a script reading in front of an outside audience, including sociologists and public speaking coaches. And when they were all seated, I said, well, pull back the curtain, and there were all the props and the, everything set up, and away went my little play. And of course, Mr Hayes nearly had a fit because I wasn't allowed to do this. It was supposed to be a play reading, but I knew that they couldn't stop it once it started without embarrassing the people who'd come. And so before the horrified eyes of the governor and the, the parole of the play went on. Then said another with a long-drawn sigh, My clay with long oblivion has gone dry, But fill me with that, fill me old, with that old familiar, familiar juice. Methinks I might recover by and by. Now that's what I call poetry. None of your lovey-dovey shit. What do you say, Stanley? You fancy a bit of the old familiar juice? There you are, Stanley. Try it. Hmm? <sighs> oh, come on, drink it right down. We got a bucket full. Every man has to get his right whack. That's democracy, that is. That's us, then, gentlemen, drink a toast to dear old democracy. Democracy. And everyone said, wonderful, and the authorities relaxed. It wasn't so bad after all. And then the public came every Saturday to see this little thing. We put it on oh, a dozen times or so. People coming in from outside to see it director of prisons and all his team and parole people and even a couple of journos. And I wrote The Chocolate Frog. And The Chocolate Frog went on and it was away. We were, we were in the drama business. We didn't even know it. We thought we were just showing them our view. Homes and jails have been the beginning and the end of my bloody life. Don't you tell me how necessary they are. What bloody use are your homes and jails in? To put wrongdoers in. Yeah, yeah. What good does that do the squareheads anyway? It protects them, that's what. And it deters criminals from repeating. Oh. Would you believe anyone could be so stupid? Here we are with the squareheads paying for our tucker while we're training to get out and rob them again. And the genius here reckons it's all necessary. Oh. Well, the Chocolate Frog is simply about a boy who'd been to university and lived in all the democratic illusions. The average person, what an awful shock he gets if he goes to jail. I showed these people what they apparently didn't want to hear. Then they understood what we had been trying to tell them. Hearing Jack and Jim McNeil's prison stories made me see the succulent Chinese meal video in a different light. Part of the video's appeal are the layers of apparent contradiction. When I first watched it, I wondered, is Jack acting or protesting? Does he actually believe what he's saying? Or is he referencing something else? Is he distressed? Or is he having fun? Why did you do this? Up in the car. Get some cups. But what reason? What is the charge? Some humour can be explained as a tickle your brain gets when contradictory thoughts bump into each other. But now... The contradictions are starting to make sense to me. For Jack and McNeil, acting and protesting had become the same thing. Jack had tried protesting at Boggo Road when he threw shit on the chief water and when he mouthed off at the guards for locking him in a dungeon. It just got him beaten and tortured. But protest disguised as acting, that worked. They'd found a way to lean into their distress, to have fun with it. Jim believed in what he wrote, and Jack delivered the lines. Jim had grown up with his head in books. Jack had grown up talking bullshit. Jim was a thief with the heart of a writer. Jack was a con man with the heart of an actor. Whether or not Jim McNeil had ever written the words democracy manifest, Jack was channeling his friend on that day outside the restaurant, the day of his most famous performance. I think society wants to reconsider its definition of what is a criminal. Because they lock up so many men that just shouldn't be locked up. And the jail doesn't help them. And it doesn't help people outside. 
So many men in jail that should be taken home and put to bed like any other kid. And but they're 30 years old. When I was with my mother by herself in the valley, in the inner city of Brisbane, all it was was two little rooms under someone's house, a dirt floor with just sort of mats and stuff on it. So I used to get out and break into factories and come home and say, Mum, look what I found with money or whatever. And I was doing that for about oh, nine months and I got caught and sent to Westbrook Reformatory when I was about 13, 14, something like that. What a beast of a place. What do you remember about Westbrook? Oh, we're always hungry. If you get caught in the orchard stealing a carrot or something like that, well, then you'd have to go into the hall, drop your dacks, bend over. All the other boys have to gather around and watch all this. He'd give you this leather strap across the arse in the back. And if you went, ah, oh, he said, write another two, you didn't say, sir. You've got to go, ah, oh, sir. <laughs> and you'd have to walk up what they call the path, walk up and down all day before you're locked up. And, uh, oh, you go to the dorm, you have to face the guard room when you're sleeping, and if you roll over in your sleep, they'd whack you, that sort of stuff. Yeah, that was a beast of a place. Were you aware of sexual abuse? Oh, yeah, yeah, that happened a lot in Westbrook, yeah. Not to me, because uh, they tried a couple of times, but I resisted the swine. Jack had been planning an escape from Westbrook. So I thought, when the bell goes for muster, we'll run into the sun, into the west, which we did, and me and a couple of other blokes, down through the corn paddocks and whatever. But we had these sergeants on us, the older boys, yeah. Worked for the screws. They must have seen us go. Grabbed us, bashed us and dragged us back. Got the public flogging, all the hair shaved off with horse clippers and had to walk up and down the path for, well, on a couple of weeks. So that was your first escape, was it, from Westbrook? Uh, yeah, yeah. A decade later, Jim McNeil had also tried to escape, but from a police officer after a robbery. That's what landed him in Parramatta with Jack. He was doing 17 years for armed robbery and shooting a, a policeman in the ass. Didn't want to kill him. because the copper just stuck a gun through the car window and, you dog, maggot, I'll blow your head off, but Jim managed to grab the gun off him. <laughs> Then Jim turned the gun on the policeman. He said, right, I run over there and flap your arms and say, I'm a naughty policeman. <laughs> I could have killed him very easily. He's only six feet away from me. And I had a 15-shot sawn-off rifle in my hand. I just put about three in his backside. My sense of humour made me do that. But he's happy because today he got a George medal for being shot in the ass. So he got 17 years. But he only done about six or seven. Because of his plays, they give him parole. Every morning I wake up, there's no bars on the window. My plays are all performed in every state of Australia. The Chocolate Frog won about six festivals. It's incredible to go to a theatre and see that everybody is doing what I said to do. And so I said, oh, now I know how God feels. I keep popping back to look at the odd scene to get the feeling again. It's very nice. After being ordered around for years by those swine in the jail. And here I am in Sydney, drinking lots of whiskey. <clears throat> and I'm in love again. I couldn't be any happier. And I wouldn't change one day of my life or anything. And the rest of it, <clears throat> as far as I can see, is... Is going to be very nice. I'm so grateful to those thick-headed people who annoyed me so much that I wrote. 
Jim McNeil put in a good word with the parole office and got Jack an acting job on TV crime dramas. Jack had won his freedom by putting on a performance, and not for the first time. Whether he was pretending to be asleep on a prison train, impersonating a detective, or on stage, performing was the ace up Jack's sleeve. Gentlemen, this is democracy manifest. Knowing this, his behaviour outside the restaurant is still ridiculous. But now I can explain it. Jack was in a pinch. It makes sense that his first instinct was to put on a show. Yeah, well, I was desperate. I was desperate. At the risk of him never speaking to me again, I decide to ask him about running from the law after his restaurant arrest. In the paper, it said that you got bail paid, $1,000 or something, and then you didn't show up to court. Oh. Then they couldn't find you. Oh, well, I'm innocent anyway. Do you remember what you were doing? You were, like, evading the cops for a while? Oh, no, I just kept my nose clean for the last... How long ago was it? About 32 years ago or something like that? Jack had been a fugitive and he'd probably defrauded one or more credit card companies out of a lot of money. But the police hadn't known that until after they'd let him out on bail. So why had there been 10 or more police officers arresting him outside the restaurant? By their own admission, they'd thought he was a petty enough criminal to let out on bail that night. Luckily, there was someone I could ask. Dean, the detective, had put me in touch with his former partner in the fraud squad, Adam. When's the first time you, you remember seeing the video? It was my daughter who originally found it years ago. A friend had sent it to her as just a, you know, this is hilarious. She instantly sent it to me and said, that's you. I said, wow, because it was sort of, that was so long ago. There's a bit of an age group of people who it's famous for. I was at a restaurant one night with friends and we were just chatting about it and one of the waiters was about the right age. I went, just watch, and I went to the waiter and said, if I said succulent Chinese meal, what would you think? And he went, oh, that's my favourite video. <laughs> I said, well, I'm in it. He took selfies and like, it was crazy. Now you can buy a Pinot, you know, get your hand off my Pinot, my daughter was quite cheeky and bought me a T-shirt. <laughs> if you were to get your order in before Friday, those T-shirts, all oh, this wonderful wine shall be at your door. There was a group that released a song. And he was in the video. Gentlemen! I don't need to ask Adam why there were so many police at the restaurant that day. He just comes out and tells me. There was an investigator from one of the major banks investigating some stolen credit cards. He'd tracked one of the credit cards constantly being used at this restaurant. So he turned up to the restaurant and he said, do you know this person? And apparently the restaurateur said, yes. He's my best customer. <laughs> and there he is there. He's sitting right there. The owner of the restaurant pointed at Jack, who was sitting at a table eating a succulent Chinese meal. So the investigator, to get a sharp response from the police, rang up Triple O and reported it as one of Victoria's most wanted. Hence everybody showing up. It wasn't the police or the media who started the myth about a most wanted criminal. It was a bank employee who wanted the police to hurry up. Back at Jack's place, we walk over to another shed to read some of McNeil's unpublished work. I've got stuff in my safe just in there. Come and have... Yeah. There she is. You want me to show you how to open a safe without <laughs> blowing it? Sure. <laughs> ah, there's one that he started. 
I know without him telling me it will kill me. He holds up bottle dramatically. This is my friend, my shield, my protector. So when did you record this with Jim? 1980 or something like that. Mm. He was trying to work out this next play, There Stands a Glass. In the end, he was sleeping in parks with you know, the other drunks. I'll go and grab him and bring him up to my place at Brunswick Edge. He'd stay for a while and we'd go fishing and we'd drink together, but I wouldn't let him get into that whiskey first thing in the morning. He'd eventually get sick of that and he'd go back to Sydney, back into it again. I was in Perth when it happened. I went and, uh, with a bodgy, booked up hundreds and hundreds of dollars worth of flowers and reefs and things on the phone for his funeral, because his funeral's in Sydney. I was in Perth, I couldn't get a grab. Was he your best friend, Jim McNeil? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Jack hasn't heard the McNeil interviews. We listened to them together. They could never find him anymore with a brew under the bed. It was all in the sink. He would eat. How does it feel hearing his voice? Oh, mate, I've got tears in my eyes. Good memories. That brings it back. On the way to Jack's place, I'd stopped in at the Queensland archives to read the transcripts of Jack's first trial as an adult at 17 years old. The transcripts are shocking. By all accounts, he'd told me the truth about his first conviction. He didn't break into the shop with the other boys, didn't hurt anyone, didn't steal anything, didn't even trespass. He was just there, waiting outside. The other boys stole some food, tobacco and a radio the total value today would be about $60. The judge was later knighted and promoted to Chief Justice of Queensland's Supreme Court. Jack went to a brutal jail for more than five years. How do you feel about that? It seems like the judge is saying your whole life's worth a few hundred bucks. Yeah, but the point was it's the way I performed in court, pleading not guilty and kept the trial going for five days or so cross-examining and then the coppers and, and saying to the judge, you know, you probably send me to a jail, you've never been there, you don't know where you're going to send me and all this sort of stuff. But you don't deserve five no, years you, for you, that. Basically, you knew about a crime. That was your crime and that's all you really did. Yeah. I've got no regrets, mate. I Really, I don't... Not, not for all that and anything. It was pretty hard in prison, but I overcome that by doing me little trick shots with the art group and putting on Jim's place. If I hadn't have been able to turn things around, I'd probably be full of regret and hate. That's probably why a couple of my mates drank themselves to death. What did Jim think about democracy? It wasn't what it's made out to be. Yeah, I think he saw society as hypocritical. Yeah, that's it. He sort of said it's the a society that it locks these people up and brutalises them and then expects them to yeah. comply, to not be resentful and expects them to follow the same rules that led to them being brutalised. Yeah. But he said, well, why would I follow those rules? if those rules led to me being brutalised. Yeah, that's exactly how he philosophised about those things. 
You lost me sometimes. I couldn't understand some of the stuff that he'd sprouted. Jack didn't mean it when he said, this is democracy manifest. He couldn't have. If he'd thought that way, brooding and resentment would have eaten him up a long time ago, and he wouldn't have survived. The idea that society wanted to brutalise somebody for eating a meal was pure Jim McNeil. From conversations on cell bunks or over drinks, from a memorised debate, from a play scripted on a smuggled typewriter. Jack had eaten at the Chinese restaurant at least a dozen times before. Here's Adam, the detective, again. The man had been allowed to go to the toilet. And all of a sudden there's no credit cards, no, no ID, no wallet, nothing. This wasn't his first radio. The fellow didn't want to tell it to us, so we said, well, you're under arrest. He was as calm as anything. No problem whatsoever until we went outside. <laughs> That's when he just went berserk <laughs> and has released some of the most classic lines that you ever hear people quoting. What was the charge, do you remember? Eating a meal? Succulent Chinese meal? <laughs> Succulent Chinese meal. It would have related to the theft of the credit card. So it was fraudulent use of a credit card. Do you remember what you thought at the time? Like, what is this guy doing? Yeah, absolutely. He's crazy. He put on a great performance for the media. And I, I say a great performance because as soon as we got in the car and as soon as we drove away, he stopped and he actually said to us, that was fun. <laughs> he calmed down straight away. There was no fight. There was no fight getting him out of the car. Nothing. It was all put on for the cameras. He said he did it all because he thought we'd take him to the hospital rather than to jail. <laughs> but he gave himself away as soon as he sat down. Said, that was fun. If Jack had been trying to act insane, he did a terrible job of it by blowing his cover immediately after he was put into the car. At this point, I've got all the answers I wanted about the events at the restaurant. Except for this one. Why did he act like that? It still doesn't make sense. Did you really do that because you wanted them to think you're crazy, or, or, or why did you do that? Oh, I don't know. I wonder what motivated me. Probably rather than just go docilely, I'd rather go that way, I suppose. I don't know. I just done it. Jack doesn't know why he acted the way he did in his now famous video. And even after spending time with him, I don't know either. But after listening to my recordings with him over and over, I have a theory. See, Jack has a quirk. Every tragic story he tells is quickly followed by a funny detail or a happy memory or the day when it all worked out for the best. I think this quirk was a survival strategy, a way for a child to survive being beaten in bed, for a boy to survive being attacked by rapists, for a teen to survive a pitch-black dungeon. Focusing on little happy moments was his way to survive growing up in the care of people who couldn't care less. After 15 years of freedom, the longest stretch of his life, Jack had finally been caught in that Chinese restaurant. He was headed back into the custody of democratically sanctioned abuse. For most of us, the horrible reality of this would have been too much to bear. But Jack had already learnt not to dwell on horror and to appreciate fleeting joy. So when he walked outside and saw an audience of cameras, that could only mean one thing. He put on a show. Then he sat down, and in spite of the fact he was headed back to hell, he said, that was fun. It's all about looking at positive things if you can, even if there's a lot of negative stuff floating around. Go for the positive. Go for the laughter if you can.
A Succulent Chinese Meal was produced by Lawrence Bull. The sound designer was John Jacobs and the supervising producer was Claudia Taranto. I'm Miyuki Okiranta and I'll catch you next time, somewhere within earshot. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.